something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well, you'll be happy to know that Mr. Berger is back in the fold. And uh, we've, we've got a, a bit of a special show because we've got a special guest later on in the show. And tonight is pretty special because there's also a launch going off as well. So let's uh, open up the mic and introduce Mr. Berger. How are you doing? Why, why would I not be back in the fold? <laughs> well, uh, we've had t- t- two episodes where you weren't on there, so... Uh, yeah, true, true. Schedules just stink. It's it's one of those things, and uh, I think we did okay, but it's not the same without you on it. Well, thank you, thank you. <sighs> he likes me, he really likes me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how are things with you? Oh... Things are things. Yeah. Less than an hour until launch. Obviously, clearly I survived growing to Cripcon, so I'm here. Uh, now, we won't we won't talk too much about that now because we're going to have yeah, a, yeah, an yeah, episode yeah. about it. But um, I know you were a bit worried to, to start with, but uh, it, it looks like you had a good time. It was cool. For me, the whole thing was that it's this is your thing. I just didn't know how I would possibly fit in. But I actually was able to make a connection with the... But most of the people, so it, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, they're a really nice bunch. They really are. And um, it, it came across that um, they took you in as, like, part of the family. Yeah, pretty much. Which is what I kind of thought would happen. <laughs> well, it also helped that I got there a day early and met with Diane. And she took me over to meet everybody, all the panelists, while I was there. So I got to meet and greet with them for that whole tour and all of that. And we'll, we'll go over that, I guess, in the next show. Uh, well, it'll be it, within the next couple of shows. Um, I've got another one that I've had planned for a while that I need to put forward first. And then uh, we'll go with the, the Cripcon podcast. Whatever works. Right. I think we need to go on to some space news now. So we'll have a short break. And when we come back, that's what we'll do. Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov LRO and follow us on Twitter, at LRO underscore NASA. This is TGP Nominal. So welcome back to TGP Nominal, and um, we're waiting for the, the countdown on this launch. Uh, what are we looking at, John? Uh, as we record this, we've got just under 35 minutes. Okay, if you can keep an eye on that for us. Of course. There's been a lot of things going on in the space community. Um, we've had a lot of TV shows over here lately that um, 
we've kind of mentioned in the past, we've had uh, Stargazing Live, which came from Australia instead of from the UK because they wanted to show a few things um, that was different over there uh, in their skies because obviously instead of having uh, the Pole Star and things like that, they have the Southern Cross and um, different things. So it was good to see things from... Uh, on, in the skies from a different perspective um, and that was a really uh, cool show and they also did a version for the Australian network as well so the UK and Australia have a version of Stargazing Live now which is awesome not only that uh, the Sky at Night which is uh, a, a brilliant show has celebrated its 60th anniversary the longest running astronomy based TV show every month for the last 60 years I was, I've been watching some clips from the original series back in uh, 57 and it's like, uh, you can't see very much. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit of an odd show to have when, you know, those kind of shows really are made for high definition, really. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there's just... So you're talking about, like, the old old black and white where there was, like, really bad contrast and... and mm-hmm negative ghosting and all that and you could see the lines oh yeah <laughs> uh, but actually on the first show they showed a clip of the first show and it was the worst cloud cover ever and of course. they couldn't show anything <laughs> which live television what can you do <laughs> yeah well i don't have the article in front of me but i know that like two weeks ago nasa actually had live 4k feed from the space station. Wow. Which I can't see. I'm, I don't have the article in front of me. I didn't. They've been doing some 4K videos for a little while. Right. Um, I don't know if you remember the one where they inject in ink or dye into water bubbles. I've seen that video, but I haven't seen that. In, I don't have an Ultra HD TV yet. But they, yet. Um, yeah, they, they did that in, in 4K. They also did that in 3D. That's my thing. <laughs> That's my. I, I want 3D over Ultra HD at this point. As long as it's done right. <laughs> as long as it's done right. But unfortunately, Hollywood and the uh, manufacturers have uh, killed it, as I kind of suspected they would, due to various reasons. But um, let's just gonna. I'll, I'll take it as long as I can get it. Then I'll upgrade to Ultra HD. Yeah. As I mentioned before, I think that 3D is really made for the big screen. Hey, you know, 3D movies are still being announced for 2019, 2020. I'm just going to keep going with my TV as long as I can. Although, really, I could keep going on even after that because I have the software necessary to convert 3D Blu-rays to red-blue if I need to. Mm -hmm. So I can do that. Going old school. Hey, I don't care. Or red-green as it used to be. (laughs) Red-green, yeah. (laughs) I've got a pair of um, 3D glasses left over from Jaws 3D. Oh, dear God. I've still got the original ones that they gave you at the cinema for for that. As long as you don't still have the movie. Oh, no. Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to remember who was in that. Bess Armstrong. Oh, the guy who was in Manimal. Yeah, I know. The guy you mean. But that, yeah, was, that, God, was that was awful. Was so bad. That was really awful. But I, I went to see it because, well, it was a novelty back then. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So I've, I've still got the original Jaws 3D glasses, which are really cool, actually, because <laughs> uh, over the the, nose, the bridge of the nose thing, you've actually got the mouth of the shark, actually. So it looks like your nose is inside My the God. shark's mouth. 
<laughs> I don't know whether to be proud or sad. <laughs> they're not in the best condition, but still got them. <laughs> Somewhere, I probably still have John Wayne's Hondo in 3D on VHS. Wow. I'll bet I still have it somewhere. <laughs> uh, one year, you had to go and buy the 3D glasses from, I think it was Sainsbury's or one of the supermarkets, and the money made from the sale of them went to um, a charity marathon thing we have here called Children in Need. And um, the reason why you had to have these glasses is they did a special episode of Doctor Who in 3D. Oh, wow. It was really good. You knew it was specially made for 3D because everything, it was a camera kept going round everything. Everything seemed to oh. be... <laughs> think, yeah, this is made for 3D. <laughs> but they did things like that. They also had... Uh, uh, a, a smelly vision thing where you had a, a scratch and sniff card and when the number came up on the screen you had to scratch it to match what was happening on the screen <laughs> yeah I've heard about those that's just that's kind of bizarre but they also included that in uh, oh oh god what game was it Um, uh, I think it was Infocom's Leather Goddess of Phobos they also did back it, in the mid 80s they also did it in Gran Turismo Okay, that's bizarre. What do you uh, expect it to smell on that one? Car exhaust? Um, burning rubber. Okay, there you go. Close enough. <laughs> Basically, the disc. <laughs> Not the, the side that plays, the other side to fit the label side. If you scratched oh, it, it smelled of burning rubber. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, well, it fits, though. I can't say it doesn't fit. <laughs> that's okay. Did you hear what Nintendo did for the Switch? No. Because the Switch cartridges are so small, apparently they've added a really strong bittering agent to all of the cartridges. So that kids so that don't it, swallow them. So, so well, yeah, so you don't put them in your mouth. And there are actually <laughs> YouTube videos of people out there licking their Switch cartridges. And apparently it's just really awful. Did you, uh, talking about YouTube videos, did you, see, uh, you know the craze at the moment with kids is those, those fidget um, oh, yeah, yeah we've got things. them for our kids, too. Have you seen the guy that actually turned his iPhone into one? Oh, my God. I, I saw that there that, that video is available, but I haven't watched it. I, thought, I can't bring myself to do that. There's some people out there with more money than sense. <laughs> well, yeah, can't argue that. <laughs> I thought, why would you do that? <laughs> But I'm I'm guessing he's got quite a few hits on YouTube because of it. Probably. <laughs> NASA Apollo Saturn Fives have been made out of Lego. The actual rocket, when you stand it vertically, is is about a meter high, and it's approximately one one hundred and tenth scale of the Icon rocket. The whole set has a lunar lander, it's got the command service module, it's even got it where it's, it's landed in, or splash landed in the sea. It also includes three 
display stands so you can house the model horizontally uh, and it's it's coming out beginning of June uh, it's an amazing piece and one of the things I found quite amazing about it and I don't know if you've noticed this John the amount of bricks or elements as they call them they don't call them bricks they call them elements that takes to build this is 1,969. Mm, it's purely a coincidence, yes. <laughs> I'm sure. And it, As long as that doesn't mean it's going to be $1,969 to buy. Well, the actual prices of them, um, the recommended retail price in the US is $119.99. Of course, if this was a Star Wars branded thing, that same thing would cost $500. <laughs> Once again, 119.99 euros and 109.99 great British pounds. Yeah, because of yeah, we won't go into that. (laughs) (laughs) Blame Brexit. So the part number of the model set is 21309. So look out for that in the beginning of June. It looks absolutely amazing. I just like the way that you can take the fairings off and see the the modules inside the fairings. It's brilliant. Yeah, that's actually not a bad price. I might actually grab that one. I'm not a big Lego fan, but I, I just might do this. It's it's quite special. It is something quite special. It also comes with a book or a booklet telling you about the history of the Apollo missions. So they put a lot of thought into this. It isn't just a, a thing they've just put together to, to get some money. It's, well, th- this thing was also chosen by the community. Yes, it this was. This wasn't just Legos. No, it's um, part of the, uh, what do they call it? The, the Lego Ideas, it's called, mm-hmm. uh, which you can submit your plans for possible Lego sets and then it goes past a a team of Lego specialists to see how easy it would be to come up with a, a set based around your designs and then you wait and see whether they're going to make it into a, um, a Lego set. I think there's been some other ones that are quite famous uh, Lego sets like the Ghostbusters Ecto-1, mm-hmm. that was one of them. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others, but um, they're always coming up with new ideas. There's Doctor Who ones in, in the plans and all kinds of stuff. Well, even just space-related, they, they've actually got a uh, Mars Curiosity rover that's available now. Yeah, um, and also they had the, the space shuttle was made uh, into one as well. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, I think, three sets that were actually flown in space. Um, Nice. Which bumped up the price a little bit. Well, yeah. (laughs) Anything that's space flown. (laughs) Well, apparently the the Hubble was also up for the running, but that one didn't get approved. And uh, Cassini-Huygens was also up. But according to this, I don't know if we have the same article, this says that it's expired. So I'm guessing that it went up. And then they put, a, they put a time limit on voting or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that one was actually put up as a recommendation, but that one is listed as expired. I'm going to have to look for the Curiosity rover, too. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, it would. Oh, well, I mean, if, if you want the Curiosity rover, you better get it while you can, because according to Lego's site, it's considered to be a retired product. Wow. So go get it. <laughs> Things like that would be quite easy to make a 
Lego version of, but a Saturn V with all the bits and pieces for what you get. I mean, it's not just the, the rocket, as as you know. I mean, it's actually split into three sections as a display, plus the lunar lander and um, the command module in splashdown mode. That looks really, really cool. I'll put some photos of it on the uh, show notes because it does look stunning. Yeah, and if these prices are any indication, get it now while it's actually active. I don't know if that's going to be across all stores or just Lego stores. I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, God, I hope they offer it through regular retail places. It, it would make sense, but... Supposedly one of the largest Lego stores in the country. Not the largest, but one of the largest is supposedly right out in uh, the Philadelphia area. All right. I could just hop out on the turnpike and be there in two hours. It's been open about a year now, but it was the biggest one in the UK opened in London. And they had this um, special photo booth. You have your photo taken and it recreates your face as a Lego set. I'll pass on that. It's expensive as well. I, th- I think it's about £100 to get it done. And um, the clip I saw, this guy had four kids, and they all had one inch. Okay, must be nice. <laughs> well, the Webb Space Telescope has left Goddard, and it is, well, it's either on the way or at Houston by now. Uh, so it has gone through a whole bunch of, of stresses regarding the rocket launch at the Goddard Space Center in Maryland, and so it's going to begin cryogenic testing at Johnson Space Center. The rocket launch is regarding high vibration and noises and so forth that basically just rattle the crap out of the poor thing during launch, and that's what they tested at Goddard. So now they're going to test basically what it's like out in space. It's going to be testing a whole bunch of of extremely cold temperature scenarios and things like that down at Johnson Space Center, and then... It's going to continue on its journey to Northrop Grumman Aerospace Systems in Redondo Beach, California for final assembly and testing, further testing, uh, prior to launching in 2018, assuming that their schedule still holds. Eric Smith said it's just test, 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 and if you left it to the engineers, that's all they would ever do, (laughs) Uh, if you remember. (laughs) And it does sound like it's going that way before it's doing the rounds before it actually gets to French Guiana. Basically. Right. Well, it's kind of cool. The testing that they did at Goddard, they used a high-speed camera that takes pictures at about 5,000 frames per second because the logic with that is the camera is going faster than any of the vibrations would happen. So they can use that to subtract out jitter and other things like that to get good results on what those vibrations are actually doing to the mirror. And apparently they still were able to keep it incredibly stable and they were able to to make their optical measurements and so by using a 5,000 frame per second camera they were actually able to counteract what natural vibrations they would have gotten both during testing you know intentionally vibrating it during testing as well as not trying to vibrate it but it just naturally happens that's just pretty cool to think oh yeah so you make the camera faster than the vibrations would occur and then you can account for the vibrations. Yeah, so it picks up everything. Everything. 
that's pretty cool. Yeah, I do regret not getting down there to see it, seeing as how Goddard is only a few hours from me. That's how we talk about things here in the U.S., you know, things are so many hours away. I guess you can't really do that in the U.K., can you? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's easier to do it by the mileage. <laughs> nah, we have a tendency of doing it by the hour. If you live in the South, everything's so many miles away from London, because everybody knows where London is, so they can work out where it is in conjunction. Well, plus, all you need is one backup on the M25, and who knows how long it'll take. Oh, yeah, the, U- the UK's biggest parking mall, that is it. So, <laughs> yeah, you get stuck on there, you're there for life. <laughs> I don't know if you know the guy. Uh, there's a, a singer called Chris Rea. Nope. And he did a, a song called... This is the road to hell. And everybody thought it was about the M25. Oh, hell. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember a little while back uh, on the show, you mentioned about a commemorative coin for the 50th anniversary of the lunar missions? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, there's a competition for anyone out there that's good at designing things to come up with an actual design for the coin. The competition is to select the obverse coin design, and it's got to be emblematic of the United States space program. The competition will proceed in two phases. In the first phase, artists will submit three to five samples of their artwork, along with general contact information using an online entry form at uh, usmints.gov forward slash competition these portfolios will be evaluated by an expert jury and the jury will compile a short list of artists to participate in the second phase in the second phase artists will be required to submit digital designs of what they want to put on the coins these designs will be reviewed by the entire citizens coinage advisory committee and the united states commission of fine arts and then evaluated by the same expert jury from phase one to ultimately recommend a winner to the secretary of the treasury for selection Each artist that has been invited to participate in the second phase of this competition will be paid $500 for his or her submission, and the winner of the design competition will receive $5,000. Their initials will appear on the minted coins, and they may be invited to attend a ceremony where the winning design will be unveiled. They started accepting submissions for the phase one on the 1st of May, and they will go through to the 29th of June. That's pretty cool gives a whoever wins that is going to have a pretty decent feather in their cap yes that's my design on that coin it also says there are three uh, recipient organizations that are going to receive some money from the sales of the coins and the smithsonian institutions and national air and space museums destination moon exhibit will receive some money uh, the astronauts memorial foundation and the astronaut scholarship foundation will also receive money from the sales of the coins so it's always good to plow some money back into that kind of thing oh, that's cool so we'll put a link up there i did mention the website but we'll put a link up and uh hey maybe one of our listeners might be one of the winning submissions i have no problem with that one <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give them a plug yeah definitely well, we got a few more minutes till that launch, so I'll throw a quick one-pager in here. You know the Cassini is, well, getting ready to shut down, yeah. shall we say. And uh, it has actually found some interesting things that uh, when it was going past Enceladus, it actually found that it 
well, it has all the components necessary for life. Wow. Now, it's not saying it found life. A couple of headlines went nuts with that, and you had to call BS on that. It didn't find life, but it found the components that are necessary to potentially have life. It has mostly regular water. Granted, it's frozen, but it's also got liquid water underneath its frozen surface. The one thing that it was really missing from everything was molecular hydrogen, because that is really one of the key components to life, obviously. And they found it. They actually found molecular hydrogen on one of its flybys. It didn't detect any hydrogen through many of the pulses before, uh, but there was no way to determine when it did find it, if it came from the moon or if it came from inside the instrument that measures the molecular hydrogen. So when particles would hit what they called the ion and neutral mass spectrometer, they interacted with the walls of the device and that could produce some kind of hydrogen as well. So what they did was they put the instrument into a new mode that measured the molecules without allowing them to touch the walls. So what they found was that they still had a lot of molecular hydrogen there, a lot of it, far more than would have been accounted for if it was simply the ejections hitting the walls and creating their own little bits of hydrogen. So basically that was the proof that they needed to show that molecular hydrogen is continually being produced somewhere on Enceladus. And chances are what they're talking about is that it has like underwater heat vents like we have here. Yeah, yeah. You know, we have we have a lot of those thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. And they're saying that's pretty much the same thing that's happening there. So all of the basic elements, not necessarily the organic, but the basic elements needed to support life are there. The problem is, obviously, it can't tell on this mission, clearly, because it's going to be ending in a few months. Uh, right now, it's, it's too busy going between Saturn and, and its rings. That's another thing. That's really cool. Um, the stream now says live in 26 minutes. Right, okay. So I guess they bumped that back. That's bizarre, but okay. That's what it's showing now. Okay, yeah, so unfortunately, whether it actually does support life or not, we won't be able to tell for quite some time, because even if a new mission is selected in NASA's next round of funding, well, that's going to be announced in 2019, so it probably wouldn't even reach Saturn until the late 2020s or early 2030s. Mm. But apparently all of the base necessities to support life are there, and they now have proof of it. That's kind of freaky to think about. Yeah. And who's to say that it's not there already, but because it's completely got a surface of ice, we obviously can't get in there to take a look. Mm -hmm. Not yet. Uh, and this is the reason why they're not going to crash Cassini into the moons because there is a chance there is life and we don't want to flatten it and uh, yep. <laughs> we don't want to contaminate anything there from Earth so it's safer to crash it into Saturn itself. Yeah, it's when you read stories like this that it's like, oh, okay, now I understand. Otherwise, it's easy to think, oh, they're just being paranoid. But you never know. That's it. And considering that we don't even know how life started here for sure, mm -hmm. scientifically speaking, let's, let's clarify that. For all we know, it did start there, but it's all under the surface mm -hmm. of, of the uh, ice. Who knows? Let's just say hypothetically that it was uh, you know, organic material from a comet that passed by. For all we know, the same comet could have uh, displaced the exact same organic material. 
So it, there is a very slim possibility that we evolve from something that could be on one of these moons somewhere. Very slim, but hey, you know, any possibility is still a possibility. Mm-hmm. Just... Oh, hold on. I think it launched. 30 seconds? It is did. Main engine come Ooh. Off. It didn't restart. It didn't restart the, the live feed. It simply came back and said, oh, well, live feed starts in 26 minutes. As soon as I refresh the browser, it's already taken off. So, oh, that's annoying. <laughs> actually seeing it uh, now, uh, what we're actually watching is a um, the launch of a Falcon 9 carrying uh, an Inmarsat 5. Uh, Looks like the first stage is deployed. Yeah. Oh, that's annoying. At least we know it took off. Uh, SpaceX, kindly get your YouTube feed straightened out. Thank you very much. T plus three minutes and 15 seconds into flight. A good stage separation. Ignition of the... Unfortunately, on this launch, uh, there will not be any first stage return. Um, that's due to the fact that the distance that this craft has got to carry this satellite it's just it needs all the fuel that it can so that it won't be able to return um so it's a bit weird seeing the uh the falcon 9 without any fins or feet on it or anything it's it's been a long while since we've seen that yeah <laughs> so the yeah the MRSAT uh, five is uh, for obviously for a company called MRSAT who are a, a mobile satellite network. Uh, it's for for the mobile phone networks. I'm just really annoyed that they didn't just go right into this on their YouTube feed. I just I just had it sitting here and I had to refresh it in order to catch the real feed. That is annoying. I'm mildly peeved at that, if you can't tell. <laughs> yeah. We'll be covering both burns and spacecraft separation during the cast. Yeah, it's quite a distance off from when they were going to be doing the second stage cut-off and things, but... Uh, uh, maybe just another minute or two. Because what they've done is already six minutes up. And six minutes. So maybe another two minutes. About two and a half minutes left in this Interesting, though. Altitude is... Barely moving. As a reminder, speeds increasing and so forth, but the altitude is just crawling up there. Yeah. Legs or grid fins. The first stage is not being targeted to return to land or the drone ship. So today we're staying with the second stage all the way to orbit. You see how flimsy everything looks on there. You got that foil stuff that's around yeah. the edge, <laughs> and you can see it flapping about. But then when you think about that, when I went to the National Space Centre and uh, they had the, the Blue Streak rocket there, they actually filled it up with helium. MVAC engine continues working. Helium, why? Because it would impact on itself. Um, because, because it's so thin, the, the aluminium is so thin that if they didn't fill it with helium, it would just collapse. Huh. Start a terminal guidance. Two plus eight minutes into flight. We're just over half a minute away from the planned shutdown of the MVAC D engine on the second stage. Trajectory looks nominal. Propulsion continues to look nominal. And when we get shut down, we'll wait and listen for the call from the guidance engineer letting us know how the orbit looks. 
Maybe I back cut off. We've had shutdown of the upper stage engine right on time. Trajectory looks good. It looks like we have a good parking orbit. So this completes the first of two burns of the second stage engine. Now we're currently going through a coast phase. Is the second stage with Inmarstat still attached? Coasts around the Earth, over Africa. We will reacquire telemetry and follow the second burn of the upper stage engine. That'll be at about T plus 27 minutes. So the plan right now is we'll continue the webcast, but we'll come back with status updates starting at T plus 26 minutes. In the meanwhile, we'll leave you with this view of the animation. The second stage heads towards Africa, successfully into the low Earth parking orbit, preparing for the second burn of the upper stage, coming up in just under 17 minutes and 10 seconds. Well, we're not going to stick around for 17 minutes and 10 seconds. <laughs> no. I'm still mildly peeved about missing the launch, though. But, oh well. Can't do nothing about it now. No. People have got a rough idea of what was going on there, though, so that's the main thing. Two. One. We are the world's only manned amateur space program and have flown five rockets since 2011. We build them in our workshop in Copenhagen, Denmark, and launch them from our ship on the Baltic Sea. Someday, one of us will climb in our home-built capsule on the speaker rocket and thunder up over the Kármán line at 100 kilometers where space begins. Then the capsule will freefall straight back to Earth and land by parachute in the sea. It's all crowdfunded and non-profit and has only come this far because people all over the world donate money that pay the materials, tools and rent. Therefore, our do-it-yourself spacecraft are built as simple and cheap as possible, avoiding exotic materials and complex production methods. We are around 60 unpaid volunteers, and we all do this in our spare time, working endless long nights and weekends. Why? Because it's a crazy and incredible idea. Because for amateurs, space is the final frontier. And we are hell-bent to prove that you can get there by sheer willpower and by thinking differently. Or, as Sir Edmund Hillary simply replied when he was asked why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. Because it's there. If you too want to see an amateur in space, you can support us at our website, carbsarp.com. However little or much, it's your contributions that are making it all happen. Thank you. The company is Copenhagen Suborbitals. They've been going for a while and it's quite impressive the setup they've got considering it's all done at uh, an amateur status. It, it is pretty impressive. Now, they have actually got an Indiegogo campaign for this. If you donate to their campaign, you'll help to pay for the cost of the logistics around the rocket launch. Um, they're expecting to launch their next rocket in July, uh, the Nexo 2 rocket, 
and it will be broadcast live on their live stream channel which I'll put a, a link to in the show notes every donator of $10 or more will be mentioned on the Copenhagen Suburb Portals website for $25 you'll get your name flying with the rocket when it's launched mm. um, a list of these contributors names will be put inside a sealed compartment of the rocket for $50 you get your portrait put on the side of the rocket as well uh, it says send your best smile and they'll put it on the rocket together with all the other rocket fans from around the world only portraits of yourself or a loved one you hold dear are allowed to go on the rocket. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine some weird stuff going on there otherwise. And for $75, they will send you a postcard with a picture of your portrait attached to the rocket with a thank you greeting from the team. For $100, you'll get all of the above plus an XO2 poster signed by the team and a remove before flight keychain. For $500, you'll get a private tour of their facility in Copenhagen, um, and you'll be able to try out the Tyco Deep Space Capsule and much more. You'll also receive a Nexo mission patch that was flown in space on the Nexo 2 rocket, if they're able to recover the rocket, that is. If not, you'll receive a spare patch that they've got at the facilities. Bear in mind that travel expenses to the facilities are not included in the package, so you've got to get yourself to Copenhagen. For $5,000, you get your own payload to fly on the rocket. Uh, limited to 100 grams and the dimensions of 100 by 100 by 50 millimeters and uh, this needs to be chemically biologically or electrically inert and it may not contain liquids contact the team for more details on that one and for $20,000 you can become the main sponsor of the event your logo will be embedded in the live stream and your company will be mentioned as the sponsor now, as we record this episode, the campaign stands at 22% of their flexible goal of $20,000 with 13 days left. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all amateurs, so that's, it's, that's really cool. They actually put in late nights when they finish work because they've all got jobs as well as doing this and weekends it's, it's a bit like these steam train um, enthusiasts who um, spend all weekends putting together old trains and stuff it would be cool if they did actually launch a human into space on an amateur rocket maybe it's just the scale from which I was looking at it the rockets don't look like they're too big I can't imagine it would be very comfortable inside one of those you would be pretty scrunched up in the, in the capsule but they're not doing it to go for a long distance no. It's just up into orbit and, and back down again, splash land. I like the way they actually launch their rockets from a floating platform. Pretty amazing. I've seen a couple of their launches before. They, they are really good. I get the impression if they don't make their target on Indiegogo, it's still going to go ahead anyway. It, it'll be just nice for them to not have to put in as much money as they do. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's understandable. As I say, I'll put some links up to the, the live stream and, and make a note of it as well so that we can mention it when it actually does get launched. This actually just came out, well, basically a few hours before we started recording. NASA has decided not to put astronauts on the first launch of the SLS. I'm sorry, I thought that's kind of 
a good idea anyway. You know, the first time that thing is going off in space and they wanted to put someone on it, well, I don't know about that, but whatever. Up until a few months ago, NASA planned on the space launch system taking off with an empty crew capsule for its maiden launch with crewed missions to follow later. Then, back in February, NASA said that they were looking into the possibility of putting some astronauts on that first flight. Well, obviously, uh, I'm sure that a lot of people said, uh, you sure you want to do that? So a feasibility study was done, and NASA now realizes that it is technically possible that they could still do it, but it's not worth it. So the first rocket wasn't intended to carry astronauts, so in order for it to do that, they would have to refit it with life support systems, displays, uh, launch abort systems, all that other stuff, and that would end up costing about 600 to 900 million just to do all of that and delay the mission by about another year. I mean, I understand that there are astronauts who would have absolutely jumped at the chance to do that, but not just the risk of it being the first launch, but just the cost involved and the delay that's necessary. NASA's decided, all right, you know what? We're already behind schedule because the SLS has been pushed back a few times. It's already costing them 24 billion. So they've pretty much said, you know what? Forget it. The first launch is going to happen sometime in 2019, and the first crewed mission, as in C-R-E-W-E-D, <laughs> need to specify that, first crewed mission, or that's scheduled to follow in 2021, at the earliest. We kind of said this a while back, didn't we, that I can't see that happening. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know. Hey, Trump has said that they want to have uh, people orbiting on the moon and back on the moon and so forth within his presidency. <laughs> Politics aside... Well, that could be arranged. Yeah. Send him up in one. <laughs> Send him up in one. You know, um, I don't want to say that because then you know, they might think I'm making some kind of threats toward him. But... Oh, dear. No, I just thought he might like the trip. We're sorry if it's one way. <laughs> Whatever. And no, that doesn't reveal my political leanings because I didn't want either candidate. Thank you very much. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. An agreement between France and its restive South American territory. I love that. <laughs> We're talking French Guiana here. The home to Europe's spaceport has been resolved after a month-long dispute that had prevented any launch activity since mid-March. Thanks to the Accord de Guyane, uh, which is an agreement that was signed on the 21st of April, the French and the French Guyanese officials launch service provider Ariane Space said it will be able to soon resume launch activity and can make up for delays using previously scheduled downtime over the next two months. Now that an agreement has been reached, we are fully ready to resume our operations at the uh, Guiana Space Centre, or CSG because the French do it the other way round. <laughs> uh, and Ariane Spass spokesperson said we aim to make up for the the accumulated delays on three campaigns that were underway without impacting the rest of our manifest by taking advantage of the availability we have in May and most of June since there was no launches scheduled for those two months so that's pretty handy 
One of the launches has already taken place, which was uh, an Ariane 5 dual launch for South Korea's KT satellite and uh, Brazil's Visiona Tecnologia Especial, uh, which launched on the 4th of May, a Europeanized Soyuz launch for the CES and the CES 15 satellite, which is penciled in for the 18th of May, and an Ariane 5 dual launch of the Viasat and Viasat 2 and the UTELSAT 172B satellites are penciled in for the 1st of June. So the dispute is now over and things can get back to normal again. But it's quite lucky that they had those two months where they didn't have any launches. So all the launches that they missed in March can be uh, put into place. So it shouldn't cause any delays for the rest of the launches. So in that yeah. respect, it won't affect uh, the James Webb Space Telescope as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember him talking about that. Well, that's cool. That, that That's good that they're going to get that all resolved. It was looking a bit dodgy at one point because it, it was getting quite uh, heated. Even the director of the spaceport actually came out to speak directly to the protesters. Mm. It, he really felt that he had to say something. It did kind of ease things a little bit. Um, because these people do work for him and he can understand what they're going through because I can understand what they're going through because it's classed as a part of the French Republic but they don't get or they didn't get the same rights as French citizens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the health care wasn't there, the education system wasn't there. John's back. Ignition coming up in just about 10 seconds or so. And there it goes. Nice. You might hear the applause in the background. MVAC engine has relit. This is the start of about a one-minute burn. You can see from the velocity meter on the screen, oh, yeah, we're adding in thousands of meters per second to bring the Inmarsat spacecraft from the parking orbit up to the desired geostationary transfer orbit. That's made a lot of difference, so hasn't it? The burn will last about a minute total. <laughs> then we'll wait and hear how the orbit looks. Look at that thing glowing. Wow. I'd love to know what the Any temperature of that is. Good. Propulsion is nominal. Trajectory looks good. Well, it looks white hot to me. <laughs> <laughs> that burn's done. Go. Nice. 36,000 kilometers an hour. We're waiting to hear, we've had SECO, I should say. The MVAC engine is shut down. We're waiting to hear from guidance how the orbit looks. Good transfer orbit. You heard launch director call out just now, a good transfer orbit. So that completes the second of the two planned burns of the upper stage engine. You can see the nozzle now cooling back down to the background temperature of space after it burned for the one minute to add enough velocity to move us into the desired transfer orbit. Now, spacecraft separation is currently planned for just under T plus 32 minutes. So we're going to pause our coverage for the moment, but we'll be back for the deployment of the Inmarsat spacecraft uh, just before T plus 32 minutes. And that actually shows you how cold that is in space because mm -hmm. how quickly that is cooling down. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. It's kind of steadying now with the speed as well. Yeah. yeah it's getting altitude at a decent rate. Yeah. It's changed. that it's now cruising. That is impressive. Ought to be. That's great if we get to actually see the uh, deployment too. Uh, they're normally quite good at or they used to be quite good at that kind of thing. It's, it, it's really weird. But on this mission, you you take notice of 
the fact that it's deploying something into space. When you've got a first stage return, <laughs> nobody takes a blind bit of notice of what is being deployed <laughs> into space. Did it land? <laughs> <laughs> so that first stage, it's just dropping into the ocean and that's it? Um, it, it might be it? retrieved. It, I think they might okay. try and retrieve it because on, on the last launch, they actually managed to retrieve the fairings. So oh, wow. they were uh, recycled as well. So you, they might be able to retrieve it. Let's hope so. Uh, we got less than a minute, so... Hey, it sounds like we're listening to Eurovision again. T-plus 31 minutes and 27 seconds since launch. We're waiting for the final major event of this afternoon's mission, the separation of the Inmarsat spacecraft from the Falcon 9. So we're going to just listen along with everybody as we wait for a call-out of separation. Give us video. Spacecraft. We've had confirmation of spacecraft separation. Uh, looks like, unfortunately, we were not able to bring the video to you, but we did hear the voiceover from SpaceX Launch Director out at uh, Launch Complex 39A. So that's going to bring an end to our webcast. It's been a great afternoon evening out at Kennedy Space Center. We counted down with excellent weather, launched right on time. The first stage did great. The second stage went through two burns just as planned, and now we've topped it off with the separation of Inmarsat-5 Flight 4 spacecraft for our Inmarsat customer. So we've had good orbits, good separation, all you can ask for today. And so we just want to end today with our thank yous to NASA and the Air Force for range support, the Federal Aviation Administration, and of course our Inmarsat customer. We invite you to follow us on our Twitter feed as well as Instagram and our webpage at SpaceX.com. And finally, thanks for letting us share the mission of Falcon 9 with you. Until our next webcast, goodbye. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's that. We didn't get to see the, the main launch, but <laughs> it's still good to see the different engine burns and, and what have you, because it is still amazing. It, it's uh, difficult to comprehend sometimes. I'm going to see if we can get in touch with somebody at SpaceX and whether somebody would be willing to talk to us. That would be awesome. So, speaking of SpaceX and seeing as how, in this case, it doesn't get a nice controlled landing, SpaceX has actually decided to give their first reflown rocket stage as a gift to Cape Canaveral. This is the first one that went up twice. So rather than reuse it again, they've decided just because of its historical status. In fact, Elon Musk said, we think this one has some historic value, so we are thinking the Cape might like to have it as something to remember the moment. Uh, we are going to present it as a gift to the Cape. So again, this is the first stage that not only was flown, but reflown. This was the one that first went up on April 2016, and then it went back up, and so Cape's getting it now. A brand new Falcon 9 rocket costs 62 million but the fuel is anywhere between 200,000 and 300,000 so what they're trying to do then is if the first stage can be completely reused even if it has a little bit of refurbishing to it apparently the cost it, it, it's really not much from what they say here but they say that uh, 
if they do have it where all they do is reload the propellant, the rocket can launch up to 10 times. And if they do it with a little bit of refurbishing and not much, it can be reflown at least 100 times. Wow. Yeah. And that's straight from Elon Musk's mouth. That's a significant cost savings there. Just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. But yeah, so the first the first rocket to make it up to space twice is uh, being going to be given to the Cape. And similarly, two of the original space shuttle rocket boosters are going over to the Endeavour display. That's the one being shown at the California Science Center. Yeah. According to this, these two boosters provided the majority of the, of the takeoffs for the shuttle flights between 1981 and 2011. And so now they're being donated to this California Science Center in Los Angeles to provide the structural support, seismic stability, and authenticity to the Endeavor exhibit. So if you go out there and you look at those rocket boosters, well, those are the real thing. You just won't be at a party underneath the shuttle anymore <laughs> at, uh, at Yuri's night because it'll be vertical rather than horizontal. <laughs> yeah, well... They do say that there are three displays, three shuttle displays, and they're all different to support the different types of, well, flight modes, shall we say. Obviously, the one at the California Science Center is vertical, ready to take off. Atlantis, the Kennedy Space Center, has the payload bay doors open to depict its time in space. And the one at the Smithsonian, which is Discovery, it's resting on its landing gear as if it just landed. At least you could still have parties under that one. Yeah, the Atlantis exhibition is different to the rest of them because the rest of them have been cleaned up to look nice the atlantis hasn't had anything done to it from when it actually landed it's still got all the scars and everything from flight um that's what they wanted it to be because the display it's made to look like it's in in space still um so they wanted it to look as real as as possible you know part of me can't argue with that there, there's something I guess there, there'd be something to see it all nice and shiny and brand new. But there's something to be said about, hey, this is what it looks like in real life. Almost like the Star Wars, the universe it's uh, lived in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anytime you go to any any Comic-Con or whatever and, and people have their, their outfits on, except for the Stormtroopers, any of the Mandalorians and so forth, they've got battle damage, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So, makes uh, sense. Unless you're a Sand oh. Trooper, I guess. Hell yeah. <laughs> now, well, whilst we're still talking about SpaceX, did you see the video of the test firing for the uh, Falcon Heavy? I did. Central Core. Quite amazing, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, part of me thinks, wow, that is really cool. And the other part of me thinks, how much engineering went into just being able to make sure it doesn't accidentally take off? Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking of how strong those structures must be to hold it in place. Yeah, those brackets must be pretty sturdy. The Falcon Heavy, as we know, is basically a souped-up version of, of the Falcon 9, roughly consisting of three Falcon 9 cores strapped together, a trio of boosters that will give the Falcon Heavy even more thrust than the Falcon 9, allowing the larger rocket to carry more than 140,000 pounds into lower Earth orbit and even 30,000 pounds onto Mars if they were to head that way. Uh, right now, the Falcon 9 can get 
a little more than £50,000 into lower Earth orbit, so it's, it's going to make a big difference to them. Elon Musk first said in 2011 that the Falcon Heavy would make its debut in 2013, but because of schedule delays and the few of the accidents that they've had uh, has forced the company to push back the vehicle's inaugural flight. Right now, SpaceX is targeting a launch at the end of summer from Launchpad 39A, and judging by the way they're doing these test burns, I think it's probably going to happen. Seriously, folks, when I mentioned a few episodes ago that we don't really talk about this stuff beforehand, we don't. But every now and then we end up printing off the same articles. (laughs) Kind of makes sense. I mean, they're they're really well partnered with SES to handle a lot of this stuff. So the chief technology officer for SES, guy named Martin Hallowell, I guess he's understandably doesn't want to put anything too valuable on the very first launch, just in case. But I love the phrase that he said that we'll probably fly something really silly on Falcon Heavy because it's quite a high risk mission. <laughs> silly? <laughs> What kind of a payload could he consider to be silly? <laughs> and it'd still be of some value that if it gets up successfully, you know. <laughs> I'm picturing something that gets up to low Earth orbit, explodes, and a bunch of confetti comes down. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> what is a silly space payload? <laughs> One of those wacky, waving, inflatable arm flailing tube men. Yeah, when you said inflatable, I was just like, where is he going with this? I was like, careful there, Mark. <laughs> We're not that kind of podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I've just, just got this image of this thing with arms <laughs> floating around. <laughs> How about a big inflatable Superman? That would be good, wouldn't it? You know, miles long or something like that, just so people can see it. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be something to watch going up. And that's going to be fingers crossed the whole way. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be there when it launches, though, because the, the sound of it will be amazing oh when that gosh. goes. The noise on that. Oh. <laughs> well, no, not so much the noise, the feel. That's true. I guess it would be both, wouldn't it? I remember reading a story about when the, the Saturn V lifted off. Some people on the on the beaches in Florida there that were actually feeling a bit nauseous because it was hitting their chest. Oh, wow. Well, well, they're probably more careful now on how close people can get. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Back then, they were probably like, well, just let them go this far away. Not a problem. And then yeah. they realized, bad idea. Move them back farther. I think it's something like a three and a half, four mile radius from the launch now. I'm curious. I'd be curious to find out what it was back then. <laughs> That's <at> 250 yards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they could feel the heat as well on that one. <laughs> Somehow me thinks you're exaggerating a bit. Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking they didn't have health and safety as much as they do now. So That's true. You know, we can't even take tours at one of our local candy factories because now, so, well, OSHA regulations say you can't have guest visitors going through that part of the facility. It's like, Really? Really? I mean, uh, I guess we've just become that litigious in America. But then again, I guess it's not really fair to compare a rocket launch with a candy company. Uh, not really. No. They're both pretty awesome, though. Even if they do have um, space-related names on some of their products. It's no secret that a sonic boom rattled Central Florida early morning on the 7th of May. What caused it was nearly a two-year-old secret military space mission that ended up 
at Kennedy Space Center. The U.S. Air Force confirmed that its X-37B unmanned uh, mini space shuttle landed at KSC after spending 718 days in orbit. The spacecraft lifted off from Cape Canaveral uh, at the uh, Air Force Station on top of a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket on May the 20th, 2015. What it has been doing circling the planet all this time is, well, anybody's guess, really. <laughs> Although many experts believe it has intelligence-gathering equipment on board. What the military did confirm in a news release is that the mini-shuttle is an experimental test program to demonstrate technologies for reliable re- usable unmanned space test platforms for the US Air Force. That didn't actually say anything really. Well I mean let's face it, the shuttle couldn't have done that. No, that's the, true. The longest shuttle mission was what, eighteen days? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Something like that. And now we're talking about, you know, seven hundred plus. So I can understand them doing that. Mm-hmm. You know although they didn't mention some of the experiments at least, where they said that they had something like a hundred different samples that were exposed, you know, different composites and so forth that were exposed to space. Why? Who knows? You know, they've had that. They had other things about, well, you know, and of course, the, the longevity part of it. Seeing as how the whole thing can be done by electricity, put out a few solar panels, and let's see how long this thing can go. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. Now, but yeah, you can't tell me that if this really was just conducting those kinds of experiments, it wouldn't be top secret. No. No. <laughs> There's something else on board. They, they, yeah, they were doing something <laughs> else for sure. Uh, this was the fourth space trip for the 29-foot-long 11,000-pound mini-shuttle, but it was the first time that it had landed in Florida, which is why the sonic boom proved an unexpected wake-up call for the local residents. Hundreds of people took to social media and contacted the local media to find out what was causing the big boom. It shook our house in Davenport and drove the dog into a, a brief frenzy, said Patrick Ryakovsky, as he posted that on his Twitter account. Jeff Savage tweeted, I just heard a loud sonic boom from what sounded like it was coming from Disney World. What the hell was it? <laughs> but it wasn't just Central Floridians who heard the spacecraft. Reports came in as far away as Tampa and Fort Myers, which is quite a distance away. Yeah, Tampa is if I remember correctly, about 100 miles from Orlando. Yeah, uh, it's about three hours from Orlando. Yeah. Was it that? Okay, so that'd be closer to 150 to 200. It's been a long time since I've been there. What can I say? Yeah, it was about two and a half, three hours when we went. I mean, sonic booms are commonplace uh, when you live in the area, but when it's a top secret mission coming in (laughs) (laughs) and it wakes you up first thing in the morning, uh, well... One guy said, that was a, a lady actually, Sherry Doham, uh, it didn't sound from where I live like a sonic boom. I heard the noise near Cape Hayes in southwest Florida, sort of unnerving with things the way they are. Just sounded like an explosion. You can understand why they were getting a bit unnerved about things, you know, what with the terrorist activity and what. Yeah, I was about to say, with America being hypersensitive and all. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm one of those people, a terrorist attack would not have even entered my mind had I heard it. <laughs> I mind Great you, job, American media. Mind you, I must admit, uh, they were building some houses not too far from where I used to live, and uh, some guy was using a nail gun, and uh, I nearly hit the deck because. <laughs> I thought some guns were going off. 
But yeah, it's... Honestly, those aren't exactly a commonplace over there, are they? Well, nail guns or guns? I mean, guns. <laughs> no, I'm saying I nail guns. Yeah, uh, guns are um, easily more easily available than you would imagine. To be huh. honest. I mean, we have gun clubs and shooting clubs and shooting ranges and things here. Now, see, if I heard an explosion, the first thing I'd think of is that maybe something, there was an accident, an explosion on a local highway, or, you know, maybe a plane crashed at a local airport. I would never have thought of terrorism. No, here, well, we're used to it anyway. I mean, we used to get it in the 70s and 80s quite regularly. Oh, yeah. with the IRA? Yeah. For us, it's it's nothing new. <laughs> Uh, that's, so. that's sad to say. You shouldn't be able to say that. Oh, yeah, it's just another attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, at least with the IRA, they used to give you a coded message beforehand, so you knew something was going to happen, but you just didn't know where. Mm. But I would imagine that intelligence would have had a rough idea of what was going on anyway. Now, um, one thing I did want to uh, mention was, uh, if, if you've seen the actual footage of the X-37B coming in, you will have noticed in the background what looks like a space shuttle. <laughs> and social media was going crazy over it because they thought, ah, space shuttle, what's going on? And, well... If you got any sense, the first thing that does come into mind is that it's a mock-up, but I didn't actually know there was a mock-up being housed at Kennedy Space Center, but it's not actually from there, is it, John? It's a full-size wooden plastic model called Inspiration. Basically, it's from the Astronauts Hall of Fame over at Titusville in Florida, and they're actually it's having some work done on it, I think, at, uh, at the Space Center. Whether it's going to go back to the Hall of Fame or whether it's going to be housed at Kennedy, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, it is a mock-up. It isn't a real shuttle. It, it looked good, though, on the side when you when you saw it well, there. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you just sent it to me right before the show. I was like, what? What is that? No, there's no way. What did I do? I went to Google and I did a quick search and, oh, there it is. It's fake. Really? <laughs> social media people, you can't do that yourself? <laughs> Have I just gotten to the point where I just don't believe anything until I actually find an article on it? Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, if that's the case, then you can blame this past election for doing that to me. <laughs> I normally don't trust anything until I've seen at least two articles on it, two separate yep. articles, and then I kind of get the feeling that it might be right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of weird, though, that even if they are doing some kind of restoration or, or whatever to it, doing it really close to that runway. Yeah, that's what I thought. Why? It was I just right on the edge. Some kind of like hangar or something for it to go into. Especially with with Florida weather. <laughs> <laughs> it is hurricane season. Yeah, it's getting there, isn't it? It's yep. end of June, beginning of July, starts kicking in. Yeah, just looking at that one still image that you sent me with that mock-up in the background tucked into the trees you can almost see this little you know uh, thought bubble coming out of it just saying <sighs> like if only it could do that again yeah now I feel sad <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering whether whoever was in charge of putting it in place thought to himself yeah we could have some fun here <laughs> maybe <laughs> <laughs> it does look good. I know she was expensive and, and you know, had a high risk rate, but I still miss that thing. Yeah, I do. Uh, there's, there's nothing like watching a shuttle launch. It's different to watching, you know, a normal rocket. But then now we've got the 
reusable part of it, which is an exciting part of the launch, you've kind of got that excitement back again, but it's still not the same. There's something special about watching that bird fly. And, some and, and the landing, too. The, the landing this, this, is... This nice, graceful landing. You just con- don't get that anymore. Considering the fact that when you listen to any pilot of a space shuttle, they say it's like trying to land a brick. Yep. There's more credit to them. Obviously not this launch thing is how we missed it, but the, uh, the, the last Falcon 9 launch, now that we've got cameras and optics that are so good mm-hmm. that we can watch everything including the first stage separation yeah from the ground yeah that blew my mind those cameras so just watch, it's like okay they're going to they're they're watching the camera from the ground and okay they're going to cut to the on board anytime now and then they do but then right next to it is the continuing view from the ground i'm like oh my god that is so cool and then seeing the thing disconnect and then we actually got to see that initial uh thrust to send the first stage back for landing. That is so cool! Have you actually seen those cameras that they use to track? Oh, no, but I would imagine that the, the lens and so forth must be ginormous. They are like looking at... Uh, you know the turret guns you get on gunships and things? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. They're like those, and uh, the skill that it takes to actually track it and keep it in shot. Mm-hmm is just staggering. I mean, these guys, or, or girls, I don't know. Whoever, yeah. yeah. We'll just use it as an all-encompassing term. They are just amazing at what they do. That, that is skill. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're, they're getting some kind of electronic help, but I just did not expect that. Next thing I know, seeing the separation and that burn-off to send it back, mm. that's just like... This is amazing. I mean, they had the absolute perfect weather for weather conditions to oh, actually yeah. get those shots. I mean, sometimes it's a bit hazy, but they were just perfect. Yeah, that was mind-blowing. The fact that we finally reached that stage, that got me excited again. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable to think that there was a time where things weren't looking so rosy in the space industry. I mean, I know things were going on in the background that we didn't know about, And then all of a sudden, there was this influx of stuff going on, and it just, wow, things started to get exciting again. And how many launches does SpaceX have for the rest of the year? A few dozen? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, holy cow, we're back. Well, seeing as how we're talking about cameras and optics and things like that, we can kind of redirect that into movies, kind of, sort of. So, Cinespace 2017 is on. And the whole idea behind it is it's an international competition of short films, videos, any kind of digital works like that, using imagery from space. So the submissions uh, can be submitted until July 31st. And the whole idea is it's behind the Houston Cinema Arts Festival, obviously in Houston, Texas. So the the grand prize is $10,000, second prize is $5,000, third prize is $3,000, but it's also got two other categories, which is the film Best Depicting Benefits of Space to Humanity for $4,000. Why that costs more than the third prize, I don't know. And then there's the film Best Depicting the Spirit of Future Exploration of Space, also for $4,000. And the whole idea is that really anyone can submit it. It's up to whoever don't have to be a professional or even an amateur filmmaker and the catch is that you have to use footage real nasa footage collected over the past 50 years 
to basically to do this. It's going to be judged on creativity, innovation, attention to detail. Well, the, what it's saying is we are considering short video, film, and digital media submissions of 10 minutes or less, all genres and styles, including but not limited to experimental, narrative, documentary, comedy, drama, animation, ambient, music videos, remix, sports, horror, and underground. But the idea is that submissions must contain at least 10%, based on the running time, of NASA video imagery. Uh, more than 10% can be used. Still photos can be used and so forth. And you can get everything from the NASA image archives. But they do say, please review the finalists and winners from 2015 and 2016. We strongly urge you to use NASA archive footage that has not been used in past competitions. So it can be 1080p, it can be standard definition, whatever. But any more information on it, go to cinespace, C-I-N-E, space.org. And there you go. You could be anywhere from 3000 to $10,000 richer. And uh, we'll put a link to the, that website also in the show notes, just in case you don't take it down. <laughs> Well, I mean, related to that, now granted, this one is about a, a month and a half old, but it's been that long since I've been on the show. NASA has basically, they've unveiled a whole new library that has, well, it's called the NASA Image and Video Library. It's separate, I guess, from the archive, and it contains space imagery from 60 different collections into one location, which means it's got over 140,000 images videos and audio files from, and it's not just like NASA space it's also aeronautics, astrophysics earth science and all of that and it's very simply at images.nasa.com you know, it's all public access, high resolution uh, they even have caption files for all the videos, now consider it's it's got 140,000 pieces it's still not meant to be a complete archive <laughs> Wow! so there's still a lot more that they could show yeah. So it, it even says, uh, NASA officials have said, this library is not comprehensive, not comprehensive at 140,000 pieces, but rather provides the best of what NASA makes publicly available from a single point of presence on the web. Additionally, it is a living website where new and archival images, video, and audio files continually will be added. 140,000, and it's not comprehensive. <laughs> it just shows you what's out there, doesn't it? I mean, I've, I've gone through it. I've seen it. It's not that easy to navigate through. There are search functions that you can do to make it a little bit easier. But, I mean, it's not super intuitive. Unless they've changed it since the last time I've looked at it. That's possible, too. They could have changed the, the uh, user interface. But still, 140,000. And that's only a, a portion of what they've got. I've got a, a couple of stories about smaller companies. <laughs> the small sat startup company called Vector Space Systems launched its first engineering test vehicle on May the 3rd from the Friends of Amateur Rocketry site in California. The Vector R vehicle flew on a suborbital trajectory on only its first stage, which was powered by a 5,000-pound force or 22-kilonewton thrust engine with a 3D-printed injector. Now, uh, once again, it's mentioning 3D-printed, not any other... <laughs> no other euphemisms <laughs> when operational the Vector R is expected to send satellites up to 110 pounds 
or 50 kilograms into low Earth orbit. Vector's team is composed of individuals who have worked at SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, McDonnell Douglas, Sea Launch, and VMware. The company is targeting the small satellite market of 44 to 440 pounds, which includes small satellites and CubeSats. The intended price point is $1.5 million to $3.5 million per launch. The rockets themselves include a number of unique technological features, included the carbon fibre structures, a reusable first stage, and a, an unusual mix of advanced propylene and liquid oxygen for propellant operating in pressure-fed engines. The company states that the rocket derives from the Garvey Spacecraft Corporation's NLV-20 nanoscale launch vehicle. 2017 has already been a groundbreaking year for Vector as we continue testing our full-scale vehicle uh, engineering models to demonstrate functionality and flight operations, said the company's co-founder and CEO Jim Cantrell in a statement. The success of this test not only sets the standard for the Swift Mobile development of our launch vehicles, but also furthers our mission to revolutionise the space flight industry and increase speed into orbit no details about the rocket's altitude distance or other performance data was released the company expects to conduct another flight test from spaceport camden in camden county in georgia this summer it'll start flying the vector r rocket into orbit in 2018 and its heavier 275 pound payload vector h vehicle in 2019 now i didn't even know there was a spaceport in georgia <laughs> i didn't know that either well i guess it's one of those where well there is now <laughs> but um, you want to see the video of the launch when it went up they actually captured it with a drone as it went up and it was there's a f- some fantastic vi- uh, footage of it so I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes as well now I, I don't know if you remember from a few episodes back that I mentioned Rocket Lab which was an American based company with a New Zealand based launch facility don't know if you remember that. Uh, vaguely. Well, they've just announced that they are going to be opening a 10-day launch attempt window for their Electron rocket from the 22nd of May. The launch will be called... It's a test. <laughs> <laughs> and their uh, mission patches has actually got It's a test on the bottom of them as well. And nice. will take, take place from their Launch Complex 1 orbital launch site on the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand. In a press release, it states this is a significant milestone for Rocket Lab and the space industry globally. We're about to enter the next phase of the Electron program, which will see the culmination of years of work from our dedicated team here at Rocket Lab. It's a test is all about gathering data. There are over 20,000 channels that will be collected during the flight, and we will use this information to learn and prosper from that. As with any new rocket, there are a lot of factors that come together ahead of the test, and we're not going to fly unless we're ready. It's highly possible that we will scrub multiple attempts as we fine-tune and wait for favourable weather conditions. What you got to remember, it's in New Zealand and they're just heading into their sort of crossover from autumn into winter, so changeable weather. 
Rocket Lab's mission is to remove the barriers from commercial space by providing frequent launch opportunities to low Earth orbit. Since its creation in 2006 by Peter Beck, Rocket Lab has delivered uh, Rocket Lab has delivered a range of complete rocket systems and technologies for fast and affordable payload deployment. Rocket Lab is a private company with major investors including Koshler Ventures. Bessemer Venture Partners, Data Collective, Promus Ventures, Lockheed Martin, and a company called Kiwi, but it's not spelt Kiwi, it's K1 W1. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so there's a couple of small companies that are starting to launch and um yeah commercial space is really coming into its own and that spaceport in georgia sure enough spaceportcamden.us and they've got a full website to it, it it's spaceport camden um never heard of it before there's a lot of these little uh, rocket launching sites cropping up i think now a few years ago there wasn't even spaceport america um, you know right. in, in mojave but now you know virgin galactic and <laughs> companies like that are using the site uh, there's a little bit of rumbling from them lately as well isn't there virgin have been uh, <laughs> yeah. doing a few publicity shots and stuff yeah they're starting to get things moving again because it was kind of difficult for them after the loss of one of their pilots right and that would put back any plans for quite a while what with investigations and things but yeah it seems that things are starting to roll again i guess you really gotta thank well you know nasa has been oh god how do i say this diplomatically they've had problems which keep these companies like spacex and so forth the ability to come in and say hey we can fill this space for you Mm -hmm. it's an exciting time you know NASA is great for stuff like exploration. Yeah. You know, look at the rovers, look at the Cassini, look mm-hmm. at New Horizons. But really, it's it's SpaceX and, and possibly Virgin Galactic and uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. Yeah, Blue Origin. It's a great time for the, the smaller kind of launches. There's just so much that can be done now. NASA, if they spent more time doing the things that they're best at, which is actually the exploration vehicles themselves and the research and everything that goes into those. They're so good at that. They're so ridiculously good at that. The actual launching systems leave it to other people. Right. That way you've got more money to spend on getting results. Sometimes I wonder what would happen if NASA actually said, you know what? The whole thing with the SLS, hey, SpaceX, come here. We want you to, to handle this. Yeah. I honestly thought when Orion came out was that it could be retrofitted to any of the other launch vehicles that are out there. But it's been proved because when you look at the, the Orion test flight, went on a, a Delta Four, I think it went up on, and um, that proved what well, it was completely successful. Apart from one of the balloons not inflating on the on the capsule when it splashed down, mm-hmm. that was the only problem that they had with it. So there are plenty of options of of launch vehicles for anything that NASA have got. Look at James Webb. That's going on an Ariane five. Right, right. The Ariane five is probably one of the most reliable rockets in any fleet, or even. With the the Falcon Heavy coming out, work with SpaceX, maybe integrate some parts of the SLS into the Falcon Heavy or something. I mean, there was a company called, I think they were called Jupiter Direct or something like that. When NASA had started phasing out the the shuttle program, they look on paper absolutely spectacular. And they were basically recycling a lot 
of the parts, the rocketry parts of the shuttle program. So you wasn't wasting any of the money. It was being used. But NASA turned around and said, nope. I mean, even when you look at the SLS, what is it using? Two space shuttle SRBs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see where they're coming from because they're going to be using the same companies that actually produce them for the space shuttle program. So it's actually Mm -hmm. keeping some people in jobs in that respect. Um, But that's what we've been saying from from the word go. The space launch system is a system that is created for jobs more than anything else. To keep some of those companies running that would have lost out dramatically after the shuttle program defunct. And and the other thing is what they could have done is, okay, you've got all these new, new companies that are developing new launch systems and... NASA could have given them their knowledge to actually, Mm -hmm. you know, use their test facilities, use whatever to to help them along. NASA creating the capsules and the spacecraft to go in them, it could have worked well that way. You know, I hope hope the folks at Goddard don't get angry at us for that. People at Goddard who uh, we've been working with for, for, for quite some time now, they are the research side of things and, you know, they're passionate about what they do true and we know that by talking to the people that we've spoken to and each of the facilities bring something to the table well that's true like we said earlier nasa is fantastic at the vehicles the the actual exploration vehicles Mm -hmm. that's that's what goddard works on yeah yeah and and the research that um you get from those said vehicles as well there is one thing here that uh, i know is is kind of a passion for you and this one will probably set you off a little bit. <laughs> There's been yet another astrophysicist who says that Pluto will never be a planet again, and we need to just move on. Now, <laughs> I've been talking to some guys recently about this uh, who are involved in astronomy, and they were saying that the way they are talking about this declassification of this and the other it won't be long before earth is declassified <laughs> you know what? actually i've heard that neil degrasse tyson said that if he had his way all four of the inner planets would already be classified that way mm-hmm. wow yeah but uh, as i say, say and i keep saying go onto facebook go onto twitter follow alan stern <laughs> and the the things that he keeps bringing out these research papers that debunk everything that's been said there well now wait the, the, this one is a astrophysicist he is actually a professor of physics and astronomy at Lewis and Clark College Lewis and Clark College in Portland Oregon uh, his name is Ethan Siegel and he basically comes out to say that uh, in astronomy Three rules of real estate apply, location, 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 and he also says that geophysics isn't enough. So he says that if we're being honest about our solar system and the number of planets within it, there are very clearly eight objects that are different from all of the others. He goes on to say the 2006 definition comes down to three things. It needs to be in hydrostatic equilibrium or have enough gravity to pull it into an ellipsoidal shape. So basically, it's got to be round. Uh, It needs to orbit the sun and not any other body. Okay. It needs to clear its orbit of any planetesimals or planetary competitors. That's the last one that Pluto seems to be getting nailed on. The problem is that definition in and of itself is problematic because it only defines a planet as existing around our own sun. Well, 
what if there's something away from the sun? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's that's a bit of a problem. Clearing its orbit seems to be subjective and dependent on what else is out there. So even if you replace the words the sun with its parent star, it's not like we can really measure other systems out there well enough to tell if their orbits are cleared or not. So the definition itself isn't precise. So basically they're saying, no, can't judge these things because our technology is not there yet. Well, that, but what he really says is that... Uh, we should be looking at the intrinsic physical properties of each world rather than the way that they interact with the stars because, well, you know, again, is it a planet if it doesn't have a star but yet something the size of Jupiter, you know, floating through space? Mm -hmm. Is that a planet just because it doesn't have a star? But the problem is that in our efforts to include Pluto, as he says, we need to include every non-stellar object more massive than about 0.01% of Earth's mass. He, th- he does think that there could be a happy medium, saying that he suggests that they have to orbit their parent star, which means free-floating might not count. Uh, they dominate their orbits in terms of mass and orbital distance. They would clear out any debris in their orbit in well under 0.1 billion years, which they couldn't just say 100 million. And their orbits, barring any outside influences, will be stable as long as their star exists. But the thing is, researchers have made like a mathematical relationship between an object's mass and its orbital distance that can be applied to any star. And if it appears above that line, it's a planet. If it's anything below that line, it's not a planet. And even then, Pluto falls below that line. So in fact, Ceres, Pluto, and Eris are the main bodies that fall below that line. Now again, this is just the opinion of of a group of researchers. And as you said, Dr. Alan Stern has his own reasons why it should be included, but who knows? This stuff is always in flux. That's what science is all about. But uh, we're just going to have to wait to see what happens. Although he is kind of biased, you know, because of, you know, New Horizons. Well, yeah, (laughs) you don't put that much work into something and then, (laughs) you know, it gets near to its position and then all of a sudden, eh, it's not a planet. You know, seeing the photos and everything that went on and and then seeing Sharon in the distance and so forth, it is kind of hard to look at that and say, how is that not a planet? Mm -hmm. It it is difficult. There's too much going on for it not to be classed as a planet. It's not not a lump of dead rock. Yeah. And I guess their, their other concern is, well, if Pluto was a planet, why aren't some of the moons of the larger planets considered to be planets in and of themselves? And I guess that's kind of where they're a little bit worried. Mm, yeah, I can see that point. Okay, for example, let's look at Ganymede. That's considered to be a moon of Jupiter. Fine. So if you look at its mean radius, it's about 0.413 Earths. So um, I guess that's a little bit less than half the size of Earth when you look at it that way. Pluto, however, is 0.186 Earths. Which, if I'm reading this correctly, means that it's, well, less than half the size of Ganymede. But Ganymede's a moon. So right there, we've got a moon larger than a supposed planet. Should that work? I get it, kind of. But on the other hand, I look at the pictures from New Horizon, and it's like, oh, but why isn't that a planet? Would that make it a moon, then? Because if Ganymede is a moon, then surely that would make it a moon as well. But... Uh, a moon of what? <laughs> right. You know, and same thing. Look at Io. Io has a radius of about 1,100 miles. 
Mm-hmm. Pluto's is only 737. So again, we've got moons, or what we have defined as moons, that are larger than Pluto. So is Pluto a moon? But you're right, of what? So it's difficult to classify what it would be. Right. Because You could say, well, what about like Mercury? Well, Mercury is 1,500 miles in radius. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's bigger than Io. But again, we still think that as a planet... But there are some astrophysicists out there that say, well, it shouldn't be. Where does it stop? I guess that's the real issue. <laughs> it's a difficult one. It really is a difficult one. But it's just the fact that we've, you know, over the last few months, uh, learned so much about Pluto. And there's a lot going for it. A lot going for it. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I do get it. Yeah. <laughs> And who knows what we're going to see when New Horizons gets out into the Kuiper Belt. You might see something else that's, you know, just as round and active as Pluto. Mm-hmm. You never know. You know, we don't know yet. I kind of think there's going to be a lot more to see out that way. But so uh, The question is, is it going to be green-skinned with big black eyes and, you know, that sort of thing? <laughs> you don't think so? It's going to be silicon-based. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is going to be a lot more to see out there. Uh, no, I don't necessarily mean life. I mean, there's going to be a lot more planetary stuff to see. I feel like one of these people that were being interviewed in the 1960s about what can we expect to see, and they're actually predicting what they think. It's just what they personally think is going to happen within the next few years and and things. And you look back at these or you listen back to these interviews and you think, well, you got that completely wrong. The problem is, though, I don't think we're going to see any real change in our exploration until we can come up with a new engine. And the thing is, there are plenty of options that are being researched right now. That's true. We've seen them on previous shows. It's just hoping that the powers that be go with some of them. Yeah. That's that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. And if we'll live long enough to see them. Mm, That's true as well. If all these companies that are coming up with these ideas do it in the same kind of time scale that people like Elon Musk have been doing it, it'll be incredible. You know, what was it, been 15 years or something that, that they've been doing things? And it's just incredible, the pace that that's picked up. Yeah, you're right, because 15 years ago, we're like, okay, well, what's next? There's nothing going on. We have to either rely on NASA or Russia. Uh, and then all of a sudden, SpaceX, and we hear more about ULA. And um, Bo- yeah. Boeing with their, uh, their Dreamliner and things like that. It's an interesting time to be interested in space. Indeed it is. Right, I think we should have a little break there, and when we come back, we've got a special guest on the show. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. 
Okay, so this next little bit here, I had to fly solo there, Mark. What's up with that? Yeah, I was en route that day to actually get some more content for the show for a, a future show, and I knew this thing was coming up, and I was like, well, I can't deal with it, so I was straight onto you, John. I said, John, is this something that you can handle? Because I knew it was a, a topic that you uh, like a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. At least this one I was comfortable with, because this is all about the Hubble. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, this was an interview that I had with Dr. Michelle Thaller, who is the Assistant Director for Science Communication at the Goddard Space Flight Center. It was all about the, uh, well, I mean, I guess we'll just let the interview speak for itself. However, let me say this. I want to apologize to everyone right here, right now, that my interviewing skills were off. I knew it as I was interviewing. It was early in the morning. They always have these things really early in the morning. I'm not a morning person. (laughs) And even as I was asking her questions or just making comments to stuff that she had said, the stuff was exiting my mouth. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, John, you could have phrased that better. So, see, this is what happens when you make me fly solo, Mark. (laughs) I'm blaming you. (laughs) So I was a little bit off my game, but still, it it was a fun interview. She is so much fun to talk to. I wish I had her energy. And she, as she even said it, she was a nerd before being a nerd was cool. <laughs> so th- th- she was a lot of fun to talk to her. And it was all about the Hubble and the latest front or the final frontier field deep space images uh, that it came out with. And, uh, well, let's just go to it. So I'm here now with Michelle Thaller. She is the Assistant Director for Science Communication at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Dr. Thaller, thank you for joining us on TGP Nominal. Hey, great to be here. Good morning. So this whole thing is all about Hubble Space Telescope's newest and final frontier field image. Um, Final? I guess in the sense that it's the latest one. I'm not sure I would absolutely guarantee it's our final one. But, uh, you know, the, the project sort of had a number of scientific goals. That doesn't mean that we can't do something similar in the future. Future. But uh, but yeah, this is sort of the uh, the end of that particular project. But I think we'll be seeing galaxies like this for a while. Okay, that, that's cool. Because I remember seeing something like this a long time ago, where exactly what you've done here, you just pointed the Hubble at one area of space that you couldn't see anything before, and all of a sudden there's just thousands of galaxies. But has that always been what's been going on? Or was it one of those, hey, wow, look, we actually see something like this. Let's do more of this. What you're remembering is the Hubble Deep Field. And the Hubble Deep Field came out, you know, on the order of, I mean, now it's about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this was an, is actually an incredibly controversial thing to do. I mean, people were sort of worried about getting in trouble for this because the um, time on the Hubble Space Telescope is incredibly valuable for scientists. I mean, let, like personally, I've had about 90 minutes over my total career that I've been able to use the Hubble Space Telescope. And I've made discoveries that I could publish papers on for years you know, out of those 90 minutes. And um, people wanted to use the Hubble Space Telescope, specifically the director at the time, thought, you know, how many galaxies could we pick up if we do a super long exposure? Now, you're, you're familiar to kind of leaving a camera shutter open and collecting lots of light using a long exposure. What if we do an exposure for like a month? And then you have to realize how valuable that time is. I mean, you know, astronomers are, are you know, wrestling each other and, you know, you're bumping each other off trying to get time on, on the Hubble Space Telescope. So we're going to take a month to look at an area of the sky where we don't see anything. I mean, seriously, it's blank. And so they they did that, and it it was incredibly audacious. I mean, it was a really brave thing to do. And they found out that in these dark, empty regions of the sky were, in fact, thousands and thousands of galaxies, even in a tiny little part of the sky. The the, the part of the sky they did this for was about the equivalent as if if you take a quarter, you know, a coin, and you hold it at arm's length, 
and look at the eye of George Washington. I mean, basically a pinprick, something you can barely see. Uh, that was the original Hubble Deep Field. It was actually, I think, one one sixty billionth of the sky, technically. Oh. And, and they and they found thousands and thousands of galaxies. That is absolutely amazing. I guess that's what started the whole thing of, hey, let's do this more often. That's right. I mean, so, of course, you know, the question is, is it like that all the way around the sky? Or did, were we just particularly lucky? Did we find an area where there were lots of galaxies? But in fact, it turns out that you can look pretty much anywhere on the sky and get that same result. Anywhere you go in a tiny pinprick of the sky, there are actually thousands of galaxies. You just need to be patient and actually take a long enough exposure to bring out that light. Going outside on a nice clear night and looking up at the sky already makes you feel insignificant. But then you see something like this and you realize we are nothing in in the grand scheme of things. It's very humbling to see all that. It's funny. I mean, we're, we're kind of nothing and everything at the same time. You know, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful sort of Zen of being a scientist. You know, the... Uh, <laughs> The, the scale of these galaxies is unbelievably huge. I mean, I mean, like a single galaxy. So, you know, I just said that in a tiny pinprick of the sky, there are thousands of galaxies. Now, a, a single galaxy like the Milky Way is, is so huge that the human brain just doesn't really get it. The, the best way I know of talking about the scale of the Milky Way is that, you know, the, the sun is a huge thing. The, the, the sun, our star, is so big you could fit a million Earths inside it. So, I mean, that that's big. A million Earths inside the sun. But if the sun were the size of the dot of an eye on a page, just regular text, think of the dot of an eye. If the sun's that scale, how big do you think the Milky Way galaxy is? Is it as big as a building? Is it as big as a state? What would you say? Uh... I'll say maybe as big as an average house. Yeah, see, that that's a pretty good guess, oh, right? Cool. I mean, so, you know, the, the, the sun is the dot of an eye, so you think, wow, a galaxy must be really, really big, about the size of a house. In fact, if the sun were the dot of an eye, the Milky Way galaxy would be about the size of the Earth. And that's one galaxy, right? That's one. And everywhere on the sky you look, in a tiny, tiny region, there are thousands. And in fact, we actually estimate that if you could take the time to make these frontier fields exposures all over the sky, you'd be able to see trillions of galaxies. It makes you wonder how we can even comprehend that. Well, my my brain doesn't go there. I I mean, I, I mean... I'm a human being like everybody else. I don't really understand what a million is, let alone a billion or a trillion. I mean, as a scientist, we use these words. But the the thing you have to remember, right? I mean, galaxies are the only places that stars form in. And they're the only places where you get things like planets and us. And then every atom in your body, besides the hydrogen, which was formed in the Big Bang, every other atom was formed inside a star. So all the oxygen and carbon and the calcium in your bones, you know, the phosphorus, everything that makes you up besides hydrogen, had to be formed by a star that then died, blew up, and all that stuff went into the galaxy to form new stars and planets. So, you know, astronomy is not the study of the very, very distant. I mean, yeah, the galaxies we're looking at are billions of light years away. But the uh, the calcium in your bones, the iron, specifically the iron in your blood, formed the moment a massive star died. So astronomy is also the study of, I mean, literally what's right in front of your nose and behind your nose and in your nose. So we are all star children. You got it. I mean, people people do not really understand how literally true that is. That you know, here at Goddard Space Flight Center, we have a person here, John Mather, who got the Nobel Prize for taking a picture of what the universe looked like 13.7 billion years ago. And uh, I mean, this isn't a theory. When when you look that far out into space, and the light took that far to get to you, it took that long to get to you. All we see is hydrogen gas. 
So it's not a theory, actually, that, uh, you know, you really are made of the stars. And the only place that happens are in galaxies. So galaxies are, are very important to you and me. Let's talk about this image. Well, first off, where can someone go to see this image? So this image is available on the Hubble uh, website. You can also go to nasa.gov, you know, www.nasa.gov slash Hubble. You'll find it there. So, uh, you know, go to the main NASA website. There's always something cool on nasa.gov, seriously. I mean, you know, I work here, and I think there's something cool every day on nasa.gov. So, you know, that's what you'll find today and, and lots of other stuff as well. I am actually taking a look at this image, and it's just astounding to look at. Uh, one thing that I did notice is that there's actually this quite a bit of gravitational lensing going on. I know what that is, but could you explain for everybody else what that is? Oh, that's so damn cool, isn't it? Oh, my God. So, okay, so gravitational lensing, I mean, it, it's sort of hard to be too dramatic about this. Um, what you're looking at is is you'll notice that the galaxies look really distorted. Uh, at least some of them do. That's not a trick of our processing. I mean, if you had, like, really, really good binoculars and you could look at the sky like the Hubble does, this is actually what you would see in the sky. This is no trick of any sort of processing. This is really what's up there shining down on us. Those distortions are caused really by a warp in space and time. And and that's really what gravity is. And that's how Einstein described gravity 100 years ago, is that what gravity really is, is space and time warping. And anything that has mass has the ability to do that, to actually bend space and time a little bit. And in the case of galaxies, I mean, galaxies actually have hundreds of billions of stars in every single galaxy. But the cool thing is, even with all of those stars, so thousands of galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy, there's not enough gravity to make that really strong warping effect you see. And most of that warping is actually due to something called dark matter. And dark matter makes up as much as 10 times the amount of mass in the universe as everything else, all the stars, all the galaxies, basically everything made of atoms, you know, regular matter. There's about 10 times more stuff out there that has gravity, but it's not made of the same stuff we're made of. There's dark matter in the room with you right now. It fills the Milky Way. There's probably something like a billion particles of dark matter passing through you at this instant, but you can't touch it or smell it or taste it or anything because the only way it interacts with us is through gravity. So what you're looking at there is a distortion in space caused by a huge amount of this mysterious form of matter. And we have no idea what it is. That's just one of those things that you know it's there, but you don't know what it is. Yeah, you can can see the gravity. I mean, think about that. So there's something that's pulling you in with gravity, distorting space around it. The gravity is so extreme, it actually distorts the the light from the galaxies. We have no idea what it is. The only thing we can prove, and we we can actually show this, is that it is, in fact, not made of anything like an atom. It's not made of the same sort of particles we're made of. You know, 90% of the universe, mass wise, may be this stuff. That's just mind blowing. So this image. Do we have any way of ascertaining the rough age of the galaxies that we're seeing in this image? We do indeed. Yes, that's, that's, we're very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It uh, it does depend. You know, of course. You know, when you estimate the age of a galaxy, what you can do is that we we know the universe has been expanding for about thirteen point eight billion years since the Big Bang, and you can actually measure sort of how much light. Let me put it this way. You can measure how much space the light passed through because space itself is expanding. And as light passes through expanding space, the light itself gets actually kind of drawn out and kind of stretched out by the expansion of space. And that's how we estimate the distance and the age of these galaxies. So we look at the light and the more expanding space the light has traveled through, the more reddened the light becomes. 
And, and that's what we call the red shift. Basically, you know, something that starts out as a visible light, you know, regular sort of blue or yellow visible light. If that object has to pass through many, many, many millions or billions of light years of space, and that space is all expanding, that light gets stretched out and actually it becomes more reddened. So it becomes more, say, orange or red light, or maybe even as far as infrared light, actually out of the entire visible part of the spectrum. So the farthest galaxies you see in this image here are about 13 billion light years away. It's pretty impressive, actually, when you think about it. I mean, the light took 13 billion years to get to us. And so you're, you're looking at something basically less than a billion years after the Big Bang. So in this image, we can see almost all the way back to the beginning of galaxies themselves, about a billion years after the Big Bang. I, I love this stuff. I've been loving space and so forth since, well, <laughs> since before the space shuttle. But even then, there's just to see this kind of thing is just, it's mind-blowing. There's no other way to describe it because it's so difficult to comprehend. You know, 13 billion years of galaxies in one image. You know, I, I often have to uh, ask the NASA people to, to get ready to bleep my, my talks because, I mean, I, and I, will, I will not use any profanity here, but good Lord, I mean, you, you want to look at these images. I mean, whether it's images like this of these galaxies or images we're returning from Saturn you know, with the Cassini spacecraft. Oh, I know. I mean, you, you kind of want to jump up and down and swear. I, I, I think that the idea that scientists don't react to these things the way that everybody else does, it's like, oh, yes, very dispassionate, another day seeing galaxies back to the beginning of time, yep, yep. You know, I mean, no, I mean, of course. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we think this is terribly, terribly cool stuff. This, I mean, look look at those gravitational arcs, right? So, I mean, those are images of regular-shaped galaxies, but they've been stretched out into these arcs. One of them kind of looks like a dragon to me. You can find sort of like looking at clouds, like what do you see in the gravitational arcs? They look all weird. I mean, that's that's really what space itself is doing. Space is warped. We can see that space and time are warped and the light has to pass through that warp. That, that's that's mind-blowing. You know, now that you mention it, the, the, in the image I'm seeing, the one on the lower left does kind of remind me of Falcor from NeverEnding Story. Yes, it totally does. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Exactly. So we, we, we do call that one the dragon. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that, it, it, that's actually, I think it's about five different images of the same spiral galaxy, all distorted by this, this, uh, this lens. And so you can actually see the same galaxy over and over again in that sort of line that looks like a dragon all drawn out. It does look like there's a semicircle of what could be mistaken as the same stars in the upper half of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gravitational lenses are so beautiful. I mean, there's some that do a whole rings, and, and there's one where the galaxy cluster inside this ring looks like a, a smiley face. I mean, that's great. If you do a search on bubble, <laughs> smiley face, gravitational lens. Yep, seen that one. Yep, it's, it's, I love these. So what's next for Hubble? I mean, it's 27 years old, which is amazing. Yeah. And, I mean, what's next? I mean, obviously, this assumes that we have funding to keep it going and assuming that it keeps working. Because from what I understand, it's only got something like half of its gyroscopes working now or something to that effect. Well, you know, during the last mission, we actually changed out a lot of the stuff. So, you know, we changed out the gyros. We changed out the uh, um, uh, the instruments. That that is the last time humans will go up and service the Hubble. There there are no no more plans to do that. So as long as those instruments keep working, we hope that uh, that Hubble will keep functioning for quite a while. I mean, it could be could be as much as ten years or maybe even more. But 
had, you know, it's kind of gravy, right? I mean, it, it has had an incredibly successful mission, and we just hope that it'll be up there for longer. The thing that we're really looking forward to, and, and Hubble's going to be part of this, is, you know, we're, we're getting ready to launch the follow-on to Hubble, which is called the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. Much bigger. It's, it's, it, the mirror is seven times the size of Hubble. So, I mean, we're going to be able to see fainter galaxies. We're going to see things even farther back towards the beginning of time. But the, uh, the, the neat thing is that the James Webb Space Telescope does not see it all in invisible light. It's entirely in infrared light, and that's that's not visible to our eyes. So we're going to be translating those images into colors so you can see them and that they'll look beautiful and all that. But what we really, really want to have happen is to have some years where both Webb and Hubble are functioning at the same time. Right. And then you could look at you know an object in space, whether it's a distant galaxy or whether, uh, whether you're looking for exoplanets, planets around other stars, and you'll be able to have all of the infrared stuff that Webb will see, but you'll also be able to get the visible light spectrum that Hubble has. So, you know, for a while, we're hoping to have these two amazing telescopes working side by side, although in fact they're they're very different. Hubble's in orbit around the Earth, and James Webb is going four times farther away than the moon, where we're actually chucking that way out in space. But we actually hope to observe the same things with both the telescopes. I mean, we actually hope to see so far back in time, you know, so far out that the light took that long to get to us, that we will see the very first galaxies form. <laughs> you hear all this stuff, and then you look at people who are like, oh yeah, that's okay. And it's like, how can you not be impressed by this? No kidding, right? Yeah, like I said, jumping up and down and swearing. That's what we want to do, yeah. (laughs) I mentioned that dark matter is going through your body right now. We, We really do think that all regular matter just kind of is a dust on top of this real universe of dark matter. That's a strange thing to say. But galaxies and stars and planets probably would never have formed without an underlying scaffolding to the universe. There's this giant web of invisible matter, this this dark matter, that connects all the galaxies together, and it funnels material in so galaxies can form. And and, and only in galaxies do you form stars and planets and, and us. So, you know, we are actually the, the, the direct consequence of this invisible underlying skeleton of the universe that we were only just beginning to detect. You, you would not be here today. We would not be going to the movie Guardians of the Galaxy without dark matter. And uh, and so it's kind of cute and it's kind of, you know, punchy, but the idea that dark matter is the real guardian of the galaxy. I mean, we, the galaxy couldn't hold together. It couldn't form without it. Well, good. I was hoping you weren't going to go where Thanos is the dark matter of the galaxy and say, whoa, that's a bad thing. Yeah, well, so we, so we know nothing about the dark matter, for all we know. You know it's a sort of shadow universe. I mean, some people wonder, actually, are there actually shadow galaxies, shadow planets? You know, could there be dark matter stars? And we, we can't see them at all. The only thing we can do is detect their gravity. So, I mean, this is really some freaky stuff. Ooh, and it's, it's going back to thinking, you know, Star Trek's Mirror Mirror episode. Could there be an evil me with a mustache and a goatee? A goatee, absolutely. So, so I, mean, you know, <laughs> I, I have, I have, I have, I have too many Star Trek costumes, and I have a Mirror Universe costume. And whenever I wear it, I do put this little fake goatee on because you have to, right? <laughs> and so I have to say, I love facial hair. I feel really, really confident and strong when I've got my goatee on. So I'm there. I've been trying to grow a beard for 47 years. It hasn't worked yet. Oh, trust me. You did, no. The, the daily maintenance of that, it's easier to just stick it on and peel it off when you want to. I love my goatee. I do. I <laughs> Okay, well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, would you be willing to come back on the show in a future time? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm around. They, they, they know where to find me. That's cool. And hopefully, seeing as how I'm not that far from Goddard, I can make a trip down there. 
Absolutely. It, it was a small error. I didn't think it was worth mentioning, but I, I actually, I used to be at Goddard, but now I'm at NASA headquarters, which is only just down in, in downtown DC. So um, if you have not been to Goddard, definitely let me and other people know. We can get you a tour. Uh, unfortunately, the James Webb Space Telescope just left. I know. Series. Didn't that just, it's going to Texas oh. now? Yeah, that's right. So it's going down to Texas. So it just left a couple of days ago. And uh, we do have one of the test units. We, we sort of built a mock-up of the telescope to run optical tests on. It's called Pathfinder. And that's in the high bay, in, in the clean room right now. You can see that. And there, there's so much to see here. I mean, the, I mean, this it's sort of like a kid in a candy store here. I mean, people don't realize there's almost 10,000 people that work at Goddard alone. And uh, it's actually the largest collection of scientists and engineers that we know of. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've done some research, but let's just say it is, it is absolutely one of the largest collections of scientists and engineers in the world. And uh, it's an amazing place to come and see. Well, that it, It's definitely on my to-do list. So that and uh, the various air and space museums. Like I said, I've been into this since I was in diapers. So just the fact that in, just seeing so deep into space with all of these galaxies is, it, it's like you said, it's a kid in a candy store. Yeah, there's so much going on. And then, I mean, you know, the, right now, it, it changes every day, so I always have to get my numbers right. I mean, I mean, so NASA is operating about 104 active science missions right now. So, I mean, that, that's incredible to me. O- over your head, we have, like, you know, 30 different satellites that are doing Earth science, you know, looking at rainfall and precipitation and the Landsat missions and ocean health and all of that. And then, of course, we've got all of our planetary probes, like Cassini, which is diving into Saturn in September. Oh, my God, I'm going to miss that. And, I mean, then we've got our new program, Jupiter, you know, called Juno, and then all the deep space stuff, you know, all the stuff like Hubble and, and James Webb Space Telescope, and, and 104 different science missions. So, I mean, it, there's so much to learn. I mean, it's it's amazing that every single day I, I learn something new here. New Horizon, Mark and I went nuts when yes. New Horizon hit Pluto. Not oh, literally, but... so beautiful. I could not believe how beautiful Pluto was. I would not have predicted that. I thought it was just to be kind of a dead rock. Uh, I think it, most people were probably thinking that. Yeah. My God, I mean, it has, uh, you know, these active nitrogen and methane glaciers, and they're butting up against these mountains that are almost 10,000 feet high, and they're made of pure water ice. Ice at that temperature, I mean, we're talking really cold, like, like you know, 350 degrees below zero. It's so strong, you can actually build mountains out of pure ice. You, you, you see the pictures from New Horizons flying over that landscape, you know, taking pictures of these mountains and these glaciers, and you just think, wow. You know, we, we got all the way out to Pluto, and Pluto was absolutely beautiful. I work in IT, so I do a lot of programming and scripting, and I just try to comprehend the math that was necessary to get it out there, and I, I just short-circuit. Well, you know, I mean, it's it, there's a lot of math. There's a lot of computations. It, it's the, the math of, of, of actually getting something out to a planet is, is not all that complicated. I mean, we, we sort of, you know, for the most part, you just need Newton to do that. I mean, math that's, that's very old. Uh, you do add a little bit of corrections for uh, for Einstein stuff. But, you know, the, the thing that's amazing to me really is the math that, uh, that Einstein did for things like these curvatures in space and time. You know, when you look at these, these warps of the light, we use Einstein's equations and math to figure out how much mass there is there. We use the math to find the mass. It's, it's a, an incredibly powerful probe of the invisible universe. So Einstein's equations are still helping us find you know, these invisible distributions of mass, you know, 100 years after Einstein. It's amazing. Uh, that is amazing. And so much out there that we'll never know, which is, it's, it's sad, but oh well. So much more to learn. Yeah, keeps us off the streets, keeps us out of trouble. Well, you know, I don't know about that keeping out of trouble because we can find ways to do that too. 
<laughs> yeah, for us, it's just nice to be, you use the Hubble Space Telescope. <laughs> it keeps us out of trouble. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be buying too many Star Trek costumes. Oh, tell me about it. Star Trek, Star Wars. Hey, you can love both. So. Oh, yeah. You absolutely can. All right. Well, Dr. Thaler, thank you very much for joining us. Hopefully, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Have a good day. Hey, thanks, you too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We need to bring her back on the show just to talk nerd stuff. <laughs> we'll see if she'll come on board to talk about non-spice stuff. Yeah, just the fact that she had an evil Spock outfit with a mustache and a goatee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that quite right amazing. Just like, oh my god, this is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I love my goatee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, she was so, and so much fun to talk to. She wasn't joking about the different costumes. I have seen photographs of her in Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who, you name it. <laughs> she's been involved <laughs> with it. Yeah, she's a trip. You know, if we get an invite from Goddard again saying, oh, yeah, you'll be interviewing with her, I'll be like, I'm on it. <laughs> Bring it. I'll gladly talk to her again. Yeah, amazing lady. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. Dot .weebly.com That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com So we've come to the end of another action-packed show and I think it's time we wrapped it all up. Sounds good. Pluto's still not a planet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> John, it's great to have you back on the show again. Oh, it's good to be back. Before we go, I'd like to thank our friends at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center for giving us the opportunity to bring these fantastic interviews to you. Thanks again, everyone, for listening in, and uh, we will speak to you again real soon. Doodles. You know it's going in. That's why I went doodles. <laughs> you know. Give you a little variant on that. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. <laughs>